The Metals Company is a deep-sea mining company. So The Metals Company is a startup. It's been around for a little while. And they are trying to mine a very deep part of the Pacific Ocean for metals to use in electric car batteries. That's our colleague Justin Sheck. He's been writing about The Metals Company, which recently has been getting a lot of attention. It's about to be the biggest company of its kind to go public, at a valuation of $2.9 billion. And that valuation is being driven up by enthusiasm for green energy. So what's happened over the last several years is that there's been this historical surge in investment that has priorities other than just making a profit. But there's just one problem. Some experts say the metals company might not actually be very green. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Tuesday, June 29th. Coming up on the show, how the demand for green investment has enabled one company that's never made a profit to land one of the biggest green deals ever. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Years before the metals company existed, its founders were already friends and colleagues. So the founders are a couple of really interesting guys. Um, they're two Australian guys. Uh, one of them is David Hayden, and he's been for decades focused in deep sea mining. And at some point around 2001, he uh, mentioned to his tennis partner, a serial entrepreneur named Gerard Barron, that, oh, there's metal at the bottom of the ocean. And this guy, Barron, the serial entrepreneur, became sort of the money guy. So Gerard Barron and David Hayden set out to build their first company together. The idea was that they would grind up the ocean floor to extract precious metals. But before they could start doing any actual mining, they had to raise cash. They had this company called Nautilus, focused in Papua New Guinea, and raised almost half a billion dollars from investors and went broke. They got into a dispute with the government of Papua New Guinea. The company ended up losing $120 million of investment from the government, and the whole thing collapsed. But they kept at it. Their second attempt was the metals company, and it was an opportunity for the partners to continue their mining pursuits. This time, they pivoted to a less intrusive form of mining. Instead of grinding up the seafloor, they'd simply pick up certain kinds of metals from the bottom of the ocean. There is a large volume of metal in this one part of the Pacific Ocean where the metal is... um. It exists as these nodules, so they're kind of the size and shape of a potato formed by, you know, many, many years of these elements precipitating out of seawater. And they initially were arguing, oh, well, we can just pick these up from two and a half miles down and sell them, and it'll be a very profitable mining company. But before they even started the process of mining, they ran into some roadblocks. They were marketing it as a big mining project, which it was. And they couldn't really get enough investment. 
because there was a lot of skepticism in the environmental community and among governments and among would-be customers who'd be buying this stuff that it was safe to mine in the deep ocean. It's part of the ocean that hasn't been explored very much, hasn't been studied for very long. And so these unknown risks made this something that people were very averse to. In its early years, the metals company looked for ways to grow. It tried to get acquired, it invested more money into research, but Barron said the company wasn't raising enough money. And then, in 2017, they decided to try a big rebrand. So Barron, George Barron, he had kind of an awakening that the world was going in a very concerning direction. Uh, Global warming was a problem. And after a few years of not really being able to successfully raise money for his company, he decided that the company would focus on his concern of making the world a better place. They rebranded it as a green company. And instead of emphasizing how we have so much metal, we could sell it for a lot of money, they started emphasizing that the electronic vehicle industry is growing and will help curb global warming. So he focused more on how this would fuel an industry that's good for the environment and it would replace an industry that's bad for the environment. That became the selling point. The metals company's pitch was that it could mine metals to use in electric vehicle batteries and that it would do so without the kind of environmental destruction of land-based mining. Barron said they'd essentially be picking up metal from a desert on the bottom of the ocean, a much less invasive process. The company posted animated videos on its website showing how it could vacuum up metal nodules on the ocean floor and bring them to the surface. As stewards of these rocks, we've partnered with top ocean scientists to baseline the environment from seafloor to surface and study the impact of collecting them. If we use them to make a billion electric car batteries, we can dramatically reduce our environmental and social impact for the whole planet. And the company's marketing wasn't the only thing that changed. Gerard Barron did, too. The metals company hired a marketing firm that began promoting a nickname someone gave Barron, the Australian Elon Musk. He had always been, he looked, you know, kind of like a run-of-the-mill business guy, wore a suit, short hair, clean cut. And over the last several years, you know, his hair has become longer, he has a beard, he, he wears a bomber jacket with a T-shirt under it now, kind of like leather bracelets on his arms. So he himself has taken on this sort of image of... Uh, of not a, a mining executive, but, you know, kind of an environmentally concerned citizen of the world. While this transformation was underway, a shift was also taking place on Wall Street. A huge wave of investors started looking to put their money behind green companies. Investors now are concerned with the environment. They're concerned with social justice. They're concerned with good governance without you know, taking advantage of poor countries with weak governments. And under the sort of abbreviation ESG, environmental social governance, ESG investing has become this fast-growing area. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Issues. It's a set of criteria investors use to evaluate ethical companies. And according to one report, since 2019, these kinds of mutual funds have netted $473 billion from investors. One other outlet for these kinds of investments is SPACs. SPACs are special purpose acquisition companies. They're basically shell companies. Their sole purpose is to raise money from investors and use it to buy a private company that aligns with their goals and values. The people running SPACs have realized that they can create an added value proposition for investors. They can attract more investor money if they say, you know, we're a green SPAC, we're an ESG SPAC, we're going to invest in things that are good for the world and not just profitable. And so 
what happened with SPACs is a whole bunch of SPACs have, you know, raised several billion dollars in order to get into nominally green industries. What actually makes a company green or not green? Like, who decides? It's kind of in the eye of the beholder in a way. In some cases, a company can call itself green, and if they convince green investors they're green, then they're green. Coming up, how Wall Street responded to the metals company's green makeover. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com journal. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Volvo Cars. Distractions happen, but there are things that can help you stay focused, like the fully electric seven-seater Volvo EX90. It was made to help keep you and those around you on the road safe with LiDAR technology that can see what you sometimes can't and a two-camera driver understanding system designed to prevent distractions and help you stay focused. Visit volvocars.com US to learn more. With so much enthusiasm for green investment, there aren't enough traditionally green companies to match investor demand. That's where it starts to go to things that are maybe not what on the surface we would consider conventionally green, but are maybe the cleanest company in a dirty industry or companies that maybe are not that clean, but, you know, are not that clean in the context of recycling things or companies that say they have a commitment to being green, but maybe haven't delivered on it yet. One example is, is a company that has been in the business for years of using waste animal carcasses from like the meat industry to produce sellable products. They make you know, pet food or ingredients that come from waste. So uh, they're sort of like taking something that theoretically might be thrown out, like the inedible parts of a cow, and turning it into something to sell. The thing is, it's gotten millions of dollars of investment explicitly from people who want to do pollution prevention, but it also is in trouble for polluting. So that's where we get into these gray areas where something isn't green or not green. It's like sort of green, maybe not. The company recently settled a state lawsuit over its emissions without admitting to the allegations. A spokesperson said, quote, we continue to make investments. We continue to upgrade the air emissions of our plants. For the metals company, the enthusiasm to get into any business with even some green association paid off. It becomes easier to raise money. They get some private investment. They get some investments from some guys on the West Coast who are kind of venture-type investors who have, you know, kind of green investing as a priority. And then they start getting offers from big mining and oil companies that want to move out of traditional mining and oil into something that could feed this growing green economy. Barron said that several SPACs were interested in the metals company. But in 2019, one SPAC, called the Sustainable Opportunities Acquisition Company, started taking an interest. 
The Sustainable Opportunities Acquisition Company calls itself the first ESG SPAC, though there are other ESG-focused SPACs that preceded it. The SPAC's lawyer said it took interest in the metals company after weighing the environmental impact of deep-sea mining versus land-based mining. Eventually, it merged with the metals company, giving it a valuation of $2.9 billion. But despite the high price tag, the metals company still hasn't earned any money. That's unusual for a company that's set to go public, but it happens in some SPAC mergers. To be clear, the metals company has never produced anything. It hasn't mined anything. It's never sold anything. It's never made any revenue. And it does not have a license to mine. So not only has it not made any revenue, right now it's not able to make any revenue. And while the metals company faces a whole host of challenges, one in particular stands out. So they want to mine a part of the Pacific Ocean that's not owned by any country. It's under a UN treaty. It's overseen by something called the International Seabed Authority, which was formed 39 years ago through a UN convention to regulate mining of international waters. But through those 39 years, it has not finalized its rules for mining those waters. So not only is it never given out a permit to mine, it does not have rules for such permits. It's only given out permits to explore. Even if the metals company is able to get permission to mine, some experts doubt whether the company would be the kind of green, sustainable business it's billed itself as. Everyone who does not have a financial stake in it happening, who we've talked to or found, says it can be hugely problematic and potentially environmentally devastating. Why? So Barron's contention that this is an area of like essentially undersea desert is absolutely untrue according to the biologists who study the area. What they say is that it's an area that's not been studied enough. Nobody really knows what's down there, but whenever they do get money to study it, they find new species on a regular basis. They find new animals they didn't know existed. And it's an ecosystem that doesn't appear to be very resilient. It seems quite slow to recover when you disturb it. So it's environmentally potentially catastrophic. And, And sort of the flip side of that, obviously, is sometimes we're afraid of what we don't know. And we know now that mining on land can be very, very bad. And I think what Gerard Barron would say is, just because we haven't done this before doesn't mean it's worse. But I think the scientific consensus seems to be that things could be very bad and we don't even know what we'd be losing. Last week, more than 300 scientists wrote a letter calling for a ban on deep-sea mining until 2030. And in March, Samsung, Volvo Group, BMW, and Google announced that they would not buy metals that came from deep-sea mining. What does the metals company say about what its environmental impact could be? How do they respond to that? They say their environmental impact will be very low. Barron says it's like picking up golf balls off the bottom of the sea and that their environmental impact is much less destructive than land-based mining, which happens in some places in rainforests, end up tearing up a rainforest to mine. So how should people feel about all this money that's flowing into green investment that may not necessarily be going to green investment? Well, it's hard to criticize the impulse to want to have your money go to things that aren't bad for the world. But... Like so much else in life, the risk is in the execution, not in the conceptualization of it. And I think people who really are conscious of the way their money is being spent, who really prioritize this, probably want to look closely at what they're investing in and not see the sort of ESG branding 
as a catch-all for good. And so it's not like everyone has a monolithic sense of, like, good for the earth. So, you know, a company may not be objectively green or not green, but it might be the least bad in the oil industry, say. And so they're, like, you know, everyone has different priorities, everyone has different ways of thinking about what's good and bad, but I think there, you know, investors who really want to prioritize the environment or social good should probably be cautious and conscientious and look a little deeper than what the executives are saying. Even the metals company itself has questioned its environmental risk. Last week, it added a new risk factor to a regulatory filing, saying that the environmental impact of its mining techniques on seafloor life could, quote, potentially be more significant than currently expected and requires further study. That's all for today, Tuesday, June 29th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Special thanks to Elliot Brown and Ben Foldy for their reporting in this story. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.